All right, guys. First of all, welcome to Grace City, Portland. Found my stool. Someday, I'm going to buy a podium, an actual proper podium. <laughs> Someday. Uh, my name is Simon, and um, I serve here as the pastor of Grace City. And if you're new or new-ish, welcome. I'm glad you're here. Really glad you're here. And, you know, I, I say this pretty much every week, so I'm going to say it again. But if you're, if you're uncertain about the Christian faith, if you're undecided in terms of, of where you stand with Jesus, I hope you find yourself in a, in a really safe place. I hope you, your experience here this morning is positive, and I hope you can simply be yourself here. Ask your questions, uh, think your objections, and, and process through everything that's said here this morning. We're primarily going to be looking to the Bible as our, our source of, of, of information and, and authority, and I want to invite you to go on a journey with us, and I want you to just be comfortable in knowing that there is no assumption going on here that we're just, we're all religious people, we're all Christians. Uh, my hope is that we will all become Christians. I'll just, I'll put my cards right out there on the table. I love Jesus, and uh, I think that if you'll put your faith in him and trust your whole life to him, uh, you'll, you'll find that it's the very, very best decision you will have ever made in your life. But there's a journey to get there sometimes, and I hope that, that this can be a place uh, for you to do that. Um, ah, before I forget, just one thing about transformations. I almost forgot. Uh, if you want to register for it, you might be wondering, oh, okay, can I just show up? Do I, does it cost money? It costs a little bit of money. It comes with a, a little curriculum workbook. And yes, you can go onto the website, gracecityportland.org, click on the link, get yourself signed up, and uh, join us Tuesday evening. Okay? Uh, okay. Let's go ahead and jump into the word. Um, we're going to be flipping to the book of 1 Corinthians. It's actually a letter. It's not really a book. We call it a book. We've been studying through this letter uh, that the Apostle Paul wrote to the ancient church of Corinth in the first century. And pretty much from the very outset, we discover that this church, this little community of people that began to be formed around the living Christ... This, this message that was going across the, the world eventually that God had entered into creation. God had become one of us so that he might die for us, cleanse us, and adopt us into his family. This message went out and, and communities began to form around Jesus. Now, as you might guess, it wasn't like the smoothest, easiest, complication-free process. Um, in fact, we discover from the very outset that the church in Corinth was a really messy church. And I would argue probably one of, if not the most unlikely church to have made it out of the first century. They just had like issues, major, major problems. So for us, I think it's incredibly helpful to study the book and hear what God would say to us through it, knowing that 
we're not exactly a perfect bunch ourselves. Amen? Amen. So let's get to it. 1 Corinthians chapter 13 is where we're going to pick up this morning. Actually, what we're going to do is part 20, the ultimate display of spiritual power is what we've entitled this installment of the series. Uh, last week, if you were here, um, you may have noticed we didn't actually make it through the end of chapter 12. Didn't anyone notice that? It happens. Um, we made it quite far, though. So we're going to just finish off the tail end of chapter 12, which is actually quite helpful because it sets us up for chapter 13. So let me just read this. End of chapter 12, starting verse 27. Now, you are the body of Christ and individually members of it. He's talking to the church and he's using the body metaphor. We're like a body, arms, legs, hands, feet, etc. 28, and God has appointed in the church first apostles, second prophets, third teachers. Um, so these are like roles, leadership roles. Then miracles, then gifts of healing, helping, administrating, various kinds of tongues. Then he asks a series of seven rhetorical questions. He says, are all apostles, are all prophets, are all teachers? Do all work miracles? Do all possess gifts of healing? Do all speak with tongues? Do all interpret tongues? And the rhetorical questions, the obvious answer is no. Obviously, no. We're individual parts of a whole body. Each one of us has been given specific gifts, but we don't all have the same gifts, which is a really beautiful reality. It's the diverse community of God's family. So no, 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 no. Verse 31. But earnestly desire the higher gifts. And I will show you a still more excellent way. So chapter 12 was all about, look, you desire to use the gifts that God has given you. Great, wonderful. Every human has the desire to be significant. We, we, want, we want our lives to count. We want to take what we've been given, our gifts, abilities, whatever it might be, and use them to make a difference in the world. And Paul's saying, wonderful, even on a spiritual level, in the church, great. But let's keep it all in perspective. Allow me to tell you about a more excellent way. So this is, this is a great buildup. This is like the cliffhanger. In fact, if we were to read the entire letter to Corinth, all, what is it? How many chapters? 16 chapters. This would be the climax of the letter. This would be the great buildup. All of the confusion, all of this in insecurities and the complications, and Paul's very systematically and patiently and boldly addressing all these concerns and issues, and it's building up and building up and building up until finally he says, I will show you a still more excellent way, and this is it, chapter 13, the love chapter. Next slide, please. So this is what he says. If I speak in the tongues of men and of angels, but have not love, I am a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. 
And if I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains, but have not love, I'm nothing. If I give away all I have, and if I deliver up my body to be burned, that's extreme, martyrdom, but have not love, I gain nothing. The problem in the Corinthian church, the problem in the Corinthian church is they were essentially like a, a hyper-charismatic church gone wild. They were zealous. They knew way too much for their own good. They apparently had like tapped into spiritual phenomena. They were exercising spiritual gifts. They were experiencing the power of the Holy Spirit. They had no lack of knowledge or power. They had the best teachers. They had all the right resources. They had mastered the motions. They had everything except they had nothing because they didn't have love. They had knowledge and power galore, but they were missing the secret sauce. They had missed love. They had missed the very heart of God. This should remind us of Jesus' closing words. Um, even if you're not a Bible scholar, you've probably heard of the Sermon on the, Ma- the Mount. No? No? Jesus preached an epic sermon that we've called the Sermon on the Mount. This is um, according to Matthew chapter 7, verses 21 to 23. At the conclusion of Jesus' Sermon on the Mount, he says, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do mighty works in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you work of lawlessness. This is where Paul is coming from. He's saying, look, you can do everything that appears to be religious and spiritual and knowledgeable and upright. But if in your heart, your motive is off, if you've missed love, you've got nothing. You're annoying. That's the clanging symbol picture. You're annoying. You're annoying. You're, you're an annoying religious person if you've not got a heart that's full of love. This is what makes the way of Jesus so utterly mysterious, profound, beautiful, um, and oftentimes complicated. Um, it's, not, it's not rocket science complicated, it's human soul complicated. Um, it's, it's simple enough for, for a child, but because of the way our human soul is, oh, we, we, we complicate it big time. 
um, it reminds me of, uh, I hung a rain chain, two of them actually, from my rain gutter this, this last fall. You guys ever hung a, a rain chain from your rain gutter? Okay, so illustration, bear with me. Uh, the rain gutter in my front, front of the house, was spilling over with like nasty water and like just sort of splashing down like in the little dirt area in front of our porch. And it just looked really bad. And I, and I thought, that can't be good for anything. Uh, but the rain gutter itself was like slightly like tilted, so the water wasn't getting to the drain. It was just all kind of gathering in the corner and spilling over. So I thought, well, gosh, some idiot obviously put the rain gutter on like not leveled right. I can't be bothered to fix the whole rain gutter, so I'll just drill a hole in the corner and hang one of those cool rain chains that I see around town. And I did, and it looked great. Put a little pot there, some stones, and I thought, beautiful. Have you ever, have, have you ever just stood and watched the, the water come? I got people looking at me like, I have no idea what you're talking about. <laughs> it's a thing. Drive around Portland. So about a month or two went by, and I was standing on the porch with my wife, Shirley, and she said, she looked up at the kind of the roof of the porch. She's like, wow, it's incredible how, how much the porch roof has dipped down. And I was like, no, no, I think, I, I think it was built that way. She went in the house. I kept staring at it, and I thought, oh, goodness. The entire corner of my front porch is slowly sinking into the ground. <laughs> The rain chain is not helping at all. All I'm doing is concentrating the water down into this one spot. My front porch is sinking into the sand. If there weren't a better metaphor for the gospel, this is it. And this is what we do. This is, this is the Corinthians. We try to make things look beautiful, fancy, nice. Think this, this is good, right? And yet if the stinking house is sinking into the mud, what good have we done? This is love. This is love. As a church, guys, we can, we can master all the right moves. We can look real good. Music, sounding awesome. Such a, it's such a blessing, really. Um, preaching, oh, goodness. <laughs> Podcast ratings through the roof. <laughs> building. Building's gorgeous. You know, there's actually a corner of the building that is, in fact, sinking. Um, it's a huge problem. Um, <laughs> someone should look into that. <laughs> it's been here 100 years. I'm, I'm sure, I'm sure it'll, it'll last long enough for us. I don't know, what do you do in like a building sinking into the ground? I digress. <laughs> the Corinthians, they wanted more knowledge. Paul declared, I will show you the way of love. They wanted more elaborate spiritual experiences. Paul said love. They wanted to be noticed and feel important in the church, Paul said love. They wanted to be somebody. They wanted to be a big deal. And Paul wanted something surpassingly better than all of that. That they would know and live 
the more excellent way, the way of Jesus, the way of love. Because without love, eventually, our church buildings become hollow monuments. Our ministries become corporations. Our marriages become managed obligations. Our friendships become expendable. And God, God becomes a footnote in our increasingly busy schedules without love. Let's talk about love. Next slide, please. Love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never fails. Isn't it one of the most beautiful, beautiful bits of the Bible, beautiful just writing you've ever heard? It's one of those passages that I think we've heard it read at so many weddings that it's, it's very easy to be like, oh, yeah, that's, isn't that sweet and slightly cliche, which is absolutely tragic because it's, it's utterly beautiful and powerful and challenging, challenging. I don't know how you read this, if, but when I go through, it's, it's almost like this very poetic sort of list. I'm not like patient, kind, check, does not envy or boast, nailed it, is not arrogant or rude, Pfft, moving on. It does not insist, I'm just like, fail, 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 fail. I aspire, I, I, I think we all aspire to love, which is the beauty of this passage. It's like, yes, this is what love should look like. But if we're honest and we hold our lives up to this as some sort of criteria, if we're honest, guys, this, this is incredibly convicting. Because I don't know how, how you love these days, but, but this, this is a lofty kind of goal. It is not irritable or resentful. have a few kids. It does not insist on its own way. God help us. What, what do you do with this? Where do we begin? If, if this if this is the frame that, that connects everything together if this is the, the core, if this is, if love, if love is the essence of God, if this is what our, if this is how we're meant to live our lives, if this is the thing that's meant to make the, the children of God stand out, be set apart, where do we even start? 
love. How can we love like that? How can we love? Do you know anyone that loves like that? Yeah? I know two, I thought long and hard about this. I, two people I can say that come close to that. My four-year-old and my dog. I'm being totally serious. My four-year-old and my dog are the only two creatures that I know who even come close to that. Yeah, I'm, I'm in my 40s now. I'm, I, I got a long, long ways to go. How do we do it? Guys, I want to I wanna, I wanna say three things. And as I was thinking about this message this week and praying, I thought, you know, it would be easy just to kind of wax, you know, theological or poetic. Oh, love, it's so beautiful. Let's all just feel a little inspired. But if we don't leave here with some, like, concrete goals, some things to work on, it, it won't, the inspiration won't last long. Um, so let's, let's, let's go there. Number one, how can we love? Number one, we must receive. Love is a spiritual phenomenon. It's a spiritual phenomenon. It's something that comes from the heart of God. It's, it's hard to define it any clearer than that. We know it when we feel it. We all want it. We need it. Life without it isn't life at all. It begins by simply receiving it from our Heavenly Father himself. Let me read to you the words of Peter. 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 22. Having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth for sincere brotherly love, love one another earnestly from a pure heart since you have been born again. Jesus talks about being born again. He's in this slightly civil debate with a religious leader of his time, Nicodemus, who came to Jesus by night because he was embarrassed to be seen with this religious fanatic. And Jesus said, if you want to experience all that I'm about, if you want to enter in to the kingdom of God, you have to be born again. It's not something you can simply work your way into. It's not a matter of just becoming more and more perfect, willing, sort of religious prowess. It begins... By yielding yourself to your maker and simply saying, Lord Jesus, help. And receiving the love of God. Until you actually surrender your whole being to God, declare your allegiance to him and ask Jesus out of your own mouth to forgive you and cleanse you, we will only ever aspire to the ethics of the kingdom without ever actually experiencing the love of the king himself. And I'm not down on ethics. Morality is super helpful. I, I think our society could do with a little more of it. But love goes beyond morality. This is a spiritual phenomenon. One of... of soul transformation, one that we receive from God. How do we receive God's love? Very, very simply, we ask him for it. We pray. We pray. That's where we start. You know, I've noticed 
Um, I have a lot of conversations with people about where they're at spiritually, where they're at with God. And typically people only like contact the pastor if something's going wrong. Just, just one of those things. It's great. Um, and the number of times I hear people talking about kind of their, their lack of something's off my heart, I don't feel close to God, I just, I don't know. Um, or they'll express something about their feelings or you know, we'll talk about a book they read. We'll, we'll think about it, we'll feel about it, we'll, we'll read a book about thinking about feeling about it. We'll do everything except just get on our knees and say, God, help. Help. God, help. That's called praying. And eventually, if you're, if you're on sort of a spiritual journey, if you're exploring the truths of the gospel, if you're trying to figure out what, what all of this means and who God is, as eventually there comes a point to where there's really not a whole lot more to be thought about. I mean, you could read another book and another book, and that's great, that's wonderful. But eventually you've got to talk to God. You've got to actually open your mouth and say, God, I surrender. I'm tired of being my own God. I'm exhausted from it. Won't you save me? Won't you fix my heart and teach me to love the way you love? That's where we start. Secondly, we must remember from where we've come. If we want to grow in love, we've got to remember from where we've come. Paul, he wrote in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 3, we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind. He's talking about our carnal desires. And we're by nature children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our sins, made us alive together with Christ. This is the man who stood, who stood by approvingly as Stephen, the first martyr of the Christian church, was stoned to death because of his faith in Jesus. I, I cannot imagine, I can hardly imagine a more brutal scene of human hatred and violence than stoning another human being to death because of their love for God. And Paul, this man who's writing to the Corinthians now about love, Scripture says that he stood by approvingly Saying, yes, let him die. And then a few chapters later, it says in Acts chapter uh, 9, that while still breathing threats and murder, Paul went on a journey, or Saul was his name at that point, went on a journey to a little town called Damascus. And along the way, he met Christ. While still breathing murder, he met Jesus. And he experienced love. This is the man who wrote 
in his letter to the Romans, I am sure that neither death nor life, nor angels nor rulers, nor things present nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Paul was the man who said, I am the chief of all sinners. He never seemed to forget who he was. And in the light of it, he had this incredible revelation of the depth of God's love. Now, you may not have been a murderer, but I dare you to convince me you've never thought it. Guys, we have to be honest. Oh, and this is this is where the ego comes into play. This is this is what's so offensive about the gospel is that the starting point is that you're depraved. That if if we were to cut open your heart and look inside, we would find something terribly dark and sinister. Because the problem's not like the person sitting next to you. It's not those evil people over in the Middle East. It's us. It's us. We're all culpable. It's a human phenomenon. And yet God, in mercy, rescued us while we were still dead. It keeps one humble. It keeps one... It makes it hard to take for granted just how much we've been loved. As soon as we start to think... I'm I'm quite lovable. Thank you very much. Well, sure, okay. Me too. I'd like to think. But God didn't save me because I was so lovable and precious. He saved me when I was in a pit, when I was ugly, when I was a mess and broken. And not only my sin, but the sin that I had found myself buried under. Right? Because it's not just all the the wicked things that I've done or thought, but it's it's the sin that I've been exposed to. It's all of those who sinned against me. It's the pain that I've had to endure in life. It's the abuse. It's the lies. It's the it's the world. We've all been subjected to it. That's where God meets us. That's where He rescues us. That's the pit he reaches down into and rescues us out of. That's how much he loves us. But we must remember from where we've come. How do we do that? We worship. I reckon there's a lot of ways to do it. But I would say we pray and we worship. There's a very, very interesting pattern in Scripture that might be helpful. You see God rescue And then something happens. You see God intervene and then something happens. You see God heal and then something happens. If you go all the way back to Exodus, this is what they've made movies about this. Israel, God's people, they've been enslaved to this oppressive nation, Egypt, for years, decades, centuries even. And they cry out to God, save us. 
And God hears their cry. And he, he sends Moses, the prophet, to lead his people and to confront the powers. And God rescues them. It's epic. There's plagues. There's, there's, a, there's, there's a sea that is split in two and parts. And, and God takes them through it. And they come out on the other side. And it says that, the, there's, that you can see Egyptian bodies laying on the shore. It's this, this like unreal rescue mission. And you know that what it says that they do next? The very next thing? They sing a song. That's what they do. Exodus 15. They sing a song. They worship. They worship so as to remember all that God has done to rescue them. They worship. They write a song and they sing it. So they will never forget that their rescuer was faithful. That God intervened and delivered them from the hands of their oppressors. You know, on the night before Jesus' crucifixion, all four of the Gospels tell the story. His disciples met with him in the upper room. And they, they, they celebrated the Passover meal, which was the meal that the Israelites celebrated for the first time just before they were delivered. And so about 1,500 years later, I think that's right, the disciples are now sharing that meal, the Passover supper with Jesus on the eve of his crucifixion. And they said after supper, you know what they did? They sung a song. It was probably the same song the Israelites sang after God had delivered them from Egypt. You know what happens after they worship? After they sing together? Well, in the Exodus story, they wander around for a little while, but eventually God brings them to a mountain. And on the mountain, they're given commandments. They're taught to obey. Where does Jesus go with his disciples after they've eaten the meal and sung the song? They go to a mountain, Mount Olivet. And what happens there? Oh, it's the greatest test of obedience in all of Scripture. Only unlike the Israelites, Jesus, the faithful Israel, he obeys. He obeys, and he comes out of the garden, and he pays the ultimate price for our eternal rescue so that we can be adopted into God's family. Um, because we could, we could do a whole sermon series on the theology of worship. Maybe we should someday. Um, but I will say this. We need to learn how to worship uh, better. We need to get a deeper understanding of why do we see, sing songs at church? Why do we do that? Why will we sing a song after we take communion at the end of this service? Because it's what God's people have been doing forever. It's how we remember all that God has done for us. And finally, I've already alluded to this. We, number one, we receive God's love. We do that by simply talking to God and saying, yes, please, we pray. Number two, we remember where we've come from. And one of the primary ways of doing that is we worship 
Worship is a, a thanking God for all that he has done. And number three, we must obey. Salvation begins with being adopted into the family of God. The experience of salvation happens when we begin to walk that out in obedience. When we begin to act like the children that God says we are. When we learn to trust and obey God like secure children who know that there is no place more sure and fulfilling than under the covering and provision of our heavenly Father. We become like children again. Which is really ironic because Paul ends this particular passage by challenging the Corinthians to grow up. Grow up. Let's go to the final slide. As for prophecies, they will pass. As for tongues, they will cease. As for knowledge, it will pass away. For we know in part, we prophesy in part, but when the perfect comes, that's Jesus, the partial will pass away. And then he, he kind of throws in this little jab. Verse 11, when I was a child, I spoke like a child. I thought like a child, I reasoned like a child. When I became a man, I gave up childish ways. For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then, that is when Jesus comes, then we will see face to face. Now I know in part, then I shall know fully, even as I have been fully known. Our destiny is to come face to face with our maker and for him to say, not I never knew you, but at last you can know me as you have been known. You are my son. You are my daughter. I love you. So now faith, hope, and love abide. These three. But the greatest of these is love. If we want to experience, if we want to increasingly experience the love of God, which he pours into our hearts by the Holy Spirit whom he's given to us, we must grow in our obedience. We mustn't be like the Israelites who were delivered, who worshipped, and then failed to learn how to obey. What did they do? They wandered around the desert for 40 years. It was like really sad and pathetic. No. We want to learn how to obey. I was thinking about what would be a great illustration for this. And I thought, I don't know if I've told this story, but it's just so good. I'll tell it again. My four-year-old, who I look up to when it comes to how to love, I know he escaped one time and tried to make a run for it. It was really scary, actually. I got a knock on our front door. And I looked through the little, little window there. It was in a previous house. And there's like a teenage girl standing on my porch. And I'm like, oh, I think I recognize her. Um, she was like one of our neighbors across the street, a few houses down. I open the door. Guess who's standing with this like random girl who I've never actually met? Judah. I think he was probably three at the time. Do you remember this? Two. He was two. And at first, I'm like, what? What are you doing with my son? Like, I'm going to call the cops. And she said, oh, excuse me, sir, is this your child? I'm like, yeah, this is my child. <laughs> oh, I thought, I thought he was. Like, I know we've never met, but I've seen your family. You live... You, 
I, I live across the street, a few doors down. Yeah, your son, um, I looked out our living room window. He was walking down the middle of the street past our house. <laughs> then I went from feeling like protective and, and angry to like, I'm the worst dad alive. <laughs> and I looked down and he had punched a hole through the screen door and like our front door and escaped and was making a run for it. Is this not what we do like in our, our relationship with God? We're like, ah, you know what? I just want to get out of the house. I want to like go wild. I want to have some real fun. And we're going to kill ourselves. Spiritual maturity, growing in love, it comes from growing and learning to obey. Because obedience is a reflection of how much we trust our God. When God says live a certain way, I've given you a body, I want you to steward it in a certain way. I've given you resources, I want you to share them in a certain way. I've given you friends and colleagues and people around you. I want, to, I want you to bless them in a certain way. I want you to live in a way that, that the world around you can see what I'm really like. It becomes a matter of obedience. Growing up is learning how to distinguish feelings from trusting God. Let's begin with receiving the love of God in Christ. Let's remember all that he's done for us. And let's recommit ourselves to being obedient children, radically embracing the faithfulness of our God, eager to obey. Can we stand together, please? pray Father help us to help us to practice loving each other as much as we, we want to, to have hearts that are just full and overflowing with your love and that we might just just quite naturally reciprocate and share your love with the world around us. We, we know that uh, it, it can get complicated. <laughs> it seems like so easy for a four-year-old or <laughs> my pet dog to do. It just is incredibly complicated for adults. Help us. Holy Spirit, we welcome you to 
to have your way in our hearts. Help us to yield to you. That we might be compelled by your love. That we might have a robust, uh, healthy realization of, of who we once were and who we are without you. That we would never, ever take for granted who you are and all that you've done. Your great love that nothing in heaven or on earth can ever, ever separate us from. Help us to love each other in a way that this world that, that we love, our city that we adore, Lord, people would see something. It wouldn't just be a matter of words or convincing argumentation. But Lord, there would be a, there would be a taste about your people there would be something to visibly see and to experience that the reality of your presence among your people would be seen and felt in the way we love one another. It's in Jesus' name we pray, amen.